Alrighty, I guess we'll go ahead and get started. Hopefully a few more will make their way in. Is it? Okay, that's probably, probably why. Usually we have a few more than, than this here. All right, well, uh, coming up, I did make the change that I mentioned last week, so I'll try to remind people of that if they make it in later. Um, third solar observation, which was supposed to do, be due next time, you don't have to turn in until November the 4th. So as long as you've got one more, that's great, but it was a little too close to the other one. So if you've already gotten one in preparation for that, you're fine because you can just turn it in then. And remember, you're looking for about 10 total by the time we get to the latter part of November, which is rapidly approaching. So we're only about a month away now from the finishing up the project as it is. So I won't collect those till November 4th. Homework three still remains at 30th of October. So that would be next week. We'll be through all that material pretty well. We only have three more chapters to get through and not very, not, not very difficult. We'd be pretty well on schedule there. And then exam as scheduled for November the 6th. So everything else should stay pretty much the same, just the solar observations that I've pushed back a little bit there. Um, and then I do have that. I didn't put up there. I have the article review. I don't remember what date I had for it on here, but I think I pushed it back a week, too, till after the exam. So, of course, if you've done the first two, you don't even have to worry about this one if you're happy with your grades. If you want to do it to drop a lower grade or to replace one you missed, then definitely uh, do the third article review. Questions? All right. Well, we're ready to go ahead and take a look at our video this time. This is actually, um, well, just finished talking about the sun not too long ago and stars. Um, this is images uh, taken from the Solar Dynamics Observatory, which is an observatory that orbits in orbit that studies the sun. It's dedicated to studying the sun. So you'll see a lot of images of the sun. Um, when I play the video, you should recognize some of the features, perhaps. You might see a little bit, a couple of the closer images, or, or some of the visible light images. You can see some of the granulation. In some cases, you can see things like prominences and loops of material that we saw in this, in the, uh, when we talked about the sun. However, what, what they're actually looking at is you're going to see a dark spot across the sun that is not a sunspot, but is actually the planet Mercury. So Mercury will be passing in front of the sun, and it's what we call a transit. So transits occur when an object passes in front of another one. So planet passing in front of the sun. From Earth, there's only two planets that can pass in front of the sun. That'd be Mercury and Venus, because they're closer to us. They're the only things that can get between us and the sun. Jupiter can't get between us and the sun. Now, if you lived on Jupiter, then you could see Mercury, Venus, Earth, and Mars all transit the sun. If you lived on Neptune, you could see all the other planets transit the sun at some point or another. They're not super common because the orbits are all tilted a little bit, so they will occur um, from time to time. In fact, this one is from 2016, and the previous ones, or the next one is coming up in a few weeks, November 11th. So kind of in preparation for, for that. Uh, transits of Venus are even more rare. There were a couple. Last one was 2012, as I recall. And if you, did, if you missed it, you're out of luck because the next one's well over 100, 100, 150 years from now. 
So most likely not going to get to see. Transits of Venus come in pairs, but then they're separated by more than a century before it'll actually happen again. It just has to do with how the orbit's all put together. So let me go ahead and play the video there. We can go ahead and make it full screen. But you can see a lot of the features of the sun, and there is little Mercury moving its way across the face of the sun. The interesting thing about transits is they give you a chance to study things like the atmosphere of a planet. Now, Mercury doesn't have much of an atmosphere. Uh, it does have some things. There you can see some of the granulation that we mentioned. But it does have a very thin atmosphere. So very heavy gases, things like xenon can be held in it, on it. Not a whole lot that can be held by Mercury, but this is a way to be able to study that because you're looking at sunlight through the atmosphere. So it gives you a good way to be able to study it. All the different images are different pictures of the sun taken at different wavelengths of ultraviolet light. So most of this, with a few, except, with a few exceptions of some of them that looked nice and visible light, most of these are taken in the ultraviolet. There was a little prominence or flare going off there. Uh, but most of these are taken in different wavelengths of ultraviolet light. That is what the way we're studying the sun with this uh, telescope, uh, this observatory. But there were a few in there that you could see that looked visible light, and they very much were. And there's little Mercury going there as they switch between the different wavelengths that, at which the uh, observatory observes. You can see, again, along the edge, all sorts of activity there. Um, that was going on. The sun was a little bit more active at this time than it is now. We were coming down off the peak at that point. Right now, this one is going to look very minimal, minimally active. There's one of the visible light uh, ones. And then we get now showing Mercury heading off the other side as it goes through there. Um, so, how long did Trying to remember, Venus one was an hour or two. Mercury would be a little. Mercury moves a little faster, but it would probably be a good. You'd probably get about an hour to see it, and I'd have to look up the exact number. So don't hold me to that. It's not going to whip across there in thirty seconds, right. and it's not going to take. You're not going to have seven hours to be able to watch it. So I would say an hour, but that could be. Maybe it's forty-five minutes. Maybe it's two hours. You know, exactly the amount of time it would take. I'd have to go look. I didn't look that one up. Other questions? Otherwise, we are ready to talk about chapter, start on chapter 20, as I recall. So the next section of this, the first, we had the first three chapters that we looked at kind of together, which are all about stars and the basic materials of the stars. Now we're going to get into how stars form, how they live, and how they die, and what's left over over the next couple of weeks. So that's sort of uh, our basis to start here. And what we're going to start with is the material from which the stars form. So going to form a star, we need material. And that's what we call the interstellar medium. So the interstellar medium is essentially any material that you find in between the stars. For the most part, like everything else in the universe, it's hydrogen gas. So 90% of it's hydrogen gas, 10% of it's helium, and there's little bits and pieces of other stuff. And in fact, interstellar gas itself is about 99% of the material between the stars. So we tend to split it up into two parts. We call, it, we call the gas 
and the dust. Now, the nice thing with the, the gas you can see through. So gas is nice and clear, just like the gases in our atmosphere are generally clear. We can see through them. Dust is not. Dust is essentially not dust as we call it here on Earth, but bigger particles, bigger clumps of material that stick together. And if you get a few of them scattered around, they can eventually block out all the light from behind. And the image over here shows some light. There's some of the gas that is glowing. So we have the brightness is the glowing gas. The dust is the darker lanes going through here. That's where the dust is concentrated enough that it blocks out the light from behind it. Now, even in that case, you're only talking very low densities, having an atom every cubic centimeter. So a you know, little sugar cube, you have one atom as compared to 10 to the 19th atoms here on the Earth's atmosphere. So very, very low density for the gas, for the dust. There's not a lot of material there. But when you put one atom here, one clump of dust, little clump of dust here, and then another one here, and another one here, and you scatter them all over the place, for the most part, you'd think you could see through it. But when you do that over large, large distances, talking about a light year, Eventually, no matter where you look in certain areas, your eye, your eye is going to hit a little bit of dust. And that's what we mean when this dust is thick, thick enough. It's not like a solid wall. It's kind of like seeing, trying to see outside of a forest when you're in the center. Okay, you're in the middle of a forest looking out. No matter where you look, you're going to see a tree. So eventually you cannot see outside that because your line of sight will eventually strike a tree here your line of sight will eventually strike a cloud, a bit of dust. So it's not dense by any sense that we have here on Earth. It's still extremely low density, but higher density than the empty spots around it. But enough and spread over enough years that even that one atom every cubic centimeter adds up when you look at light years worth of material to uh, enough material to be able to form stars. Now, we can see it in a variety of ways. Uh, this is an example of the Orion Nebula, a very uh, prominent star-forming region, and we'll look at that in a little bit more, uh, more detail. actually has four really young stars that have formed here, and you can barely see them right there. Those are called the, tepre te yeah, again, called the trapezium, four stars very close together. They're less than a million years old. So they formed very, very recently. And we're still seeing a lot of the remnants of material left over from when they formed. But not getting there yet. We'll come back to that uh, shortly. But in the, in the interstellar gas, what is it made up of? Well, a lot of it, like this, is made up of hydrogen, hydrogen regions. And we call them ionized hydrogen, or H2 regions. H2, H1 would be normal hydrogen. H2 means it's hydrogen with one electron removed. Which with hydrogen is all you can do. You can't take two electrons away from hydrogen because it doesn't have two electrons to remove. In order to see ionized hydrogen, you need energy to remove that electron. So it's only seen near hot stars. And that, all of the material you see around here, all of this gas that's glowing is hydrogen gas. It's all caused by those stars in the trapezium. Those stars are the ones that give off enough ultraviolet light to excite all that hydrogen and cause it to glow. 
Now, I tell you that you can't see ionized hydrogen, right? Limit, I think we talked about that earlier on. Well, you can't see lines of ionized hydrogen, but when you have ionized hydrogen and a lot of electrons around, they'll constantly be recombining. So when it recombines, then it glows, and then we can see that. So the ultraviolet light from these couple stars right there is what is causing the entire nebula to glow. If you took away those stars, the nebula would disappear. Material wouldn't disappear. Material would still be there. But if you're not exciting the gas, it's not going to glow anymore. So we generally talk about hydrogen, but you'd see lots of elements as well, lots of other elements. You could see things like carbon. You could see things like oxygen. That would be around there as well. Hydrogen just dominates because it's most of the material, so we tend to see hydrogen uh, because it's the e and, and we get the right temperatures, it's easy to excite. So an ionized hydrogen region is one way. It's a pretty way. We see a lot, when we look at pictures of the day, we tend to get a lot of these because they're pretty to look at rather than looking at just an individual star or something. But it's really only a tiny portion of the gas. Most of the gas is invisible. Most of it's nice and clear, like looking through our atmosphere. You don't see it, but there's a lot of material there. So a very small portion of the interstellar gas is things like this. A lot more of it is neutral hydrogen. Neutral hydrogen clouds are hard to see. They don't give off visible light. So if it doesn't give off visible light, you have trouble being able to see it. However, you can be seen when the, can be seen when the light from the star here passes through the cloud. So if you look at this, this cloud, this cloud of gas and dust, Dust blocks out some of the light, but maybe there's not enough dust to block out all of it. But here we can then see the hydrogen lines from that. The, this will absorb all the hydrogen wavelengths from the star. So you'd get some wavelengths coming from the star itself that are absorbed. You'd get other wavelengths here, unless the star and the cloud are moving at exactly the same speed relative to the Earth, in which case they'd overlap. But if the cloud is moving at one speed, either towards us or away from us, and the star is moving at another, then you'd be able to see a second set of lines. So you can infer how much hydrogen is there indirectly because the light had to pass through it. That works if there happens to be a star in the way, but in other areas, you have to look at other things. And you have to look at hydrogen emission again, but not visible light, but radio waves. So visible light gives that red glow of hydrogen, but hydrogen atoms also can, can give off radio waves. And in fact, they give off what is called the 21 centimeter wavelength of hydrogen. Boy, there was a typo, okay. <laughs> or an autocorrect. Not 21, not hydrogen emotion. I don't think hydrogen has any emotions that I know of, but it does have emission. So, apologize for that. I didn't even realize that till right now as I'm reading it. So, 21 centimeter hydrogen emission that gives off a long wavelength. It, it's a longer wavelength, lower energy. It doesn't need a hot star around it to be able to create that. In order to see the ionized hydrogen, you need ultraviolet light and lots of ultraviolet light. In order to see the 21 centimeter hydrogen emission, you only need lower energy light. 21 centimeters, you know, something like that's a long, long wavelength. 
So you don't need a lot of energy to be able to create it. And it occurs not when, they not when the hydrogen atom jumps between energy levels. Right? You need ultraviolet to get that first energy level. You need a really intense photon just to be able to get that first energy level to start the process. But it occurs when the spin between the proton and the electron flips. So you can have a case where things spin either parallel to each other, the, the proton and the electron are spinning in the same direction, or more likely, because it's slightly more stable, they're spinning in the opposite direction. So this is a slightly lower energy state. And if it jumps between these, it will either absorb a bit of energy when it goes from here to here, or emit a bit of energy when it goes from here to here. Now that's a lot easier. That's enough where hydrogen just bumping around with itself can excite it, can flip the spin. So it's very easy to do. Hydrogen atoms bumping around to each other aren't going to excite the electrons into higher states. But they can flip the spins. And once they do, they come in this state, which is unstable, and it decays back to this state and gives off 21 centimeter line of hydrogen. That we can detect. So radio telescopes can then map the universe to be able to see and what's going on to be able to see where the hydrogen is. So we can, it's one way we're able to see it using hydrogen gas, but not using the ordinary hydrogen gas that we see like this. That's what we normally see visibly, but actually mapping it in the radio portion of the spectrum. So that's where a lot of the hydrogen gas is. We also have some extremely hot gas. Um, extremely hot gas, ultra-hot temperatures of millions of degrees. So the, the gas we looked at that's giving off 21 centimeters, that's really cold. That's just tens of degrees or 100 degrees, really, really cold gas. And remember, that's above zero, above absolute zero. So zero is as cold as you get if you're talking tens of degrees among the minimal temperature that you can possibly get. The first, the hyd ionized hydrogen regions maybe in the tens of thousands degree range. That's where you really excite hydrogen gas at its peak. The ultra-hot gas reaches temperatures of millions of degrees, and we can see it sometimes in filaments like this that come out. This is caused by exploded stars, so it needs a lot of energy to be able to send the material out at very high speeds. So a star, this, this, the, the little filaments that you're seeing here are bits of a star that exploded long ago, and the material is spreading out into space. So we can also get a really hot interstellar gas as well. So cool gas is a lot of it. The other one that's actually a lot of the material is the molecular clouds, the dark, dense areas. Typically, we don't form molecules out in space. Why? Because ultraviolet light streaming through is going to break apart the molecules. Ultraviolet light, when you have things of that intensity, ultraviolet light will pretty much rip apart molecules. However, when you start to get denser areas, they shield the interior. So you've got kind of a shell around it of material that absorbs a lot of that ultraviolet light. And what's inside is then protected, and large molecules can actually form. So we can get relatively complex molecules within these. You can get some simple molecules. 
I think I'll give you some here. Some are relatively simple. You know, ammonia, NH3. We also, I don't mention there, but carbon dioxide, carbon monoxide, very common as well within the molecular clouds. Um, but you can get things like formaldehyde, acetylene. Some of these, ethylene glycol, gets to be quite a complex. That's got, what, two, four, five, six, seven. That's got 10 atoms within it. Benzene has 12. So, I mean, you can get some really complex things that wouldn't be able to exist otherwise out there in space. If you had this molecule just floating around out in space by itself, in, a, in an astronomically short period of time, ultraviolet radiation hits it, breaks it apart, and it's now carbon and hydrogen and oxygen atoms floating around. So while they could form, they would also break apart. But when you get into those molecular clouds, you've got enough dense enough material, and you're shielded, that you can actually form very complex molecules. Now, when we get to the end of the semester, I hope we have time to talk about life in the universe. And that's one of the things that we'll find is that you can actually form some really complex things, including amino acids. If you're familiar from biology, amino acids are kind of the building blocks of life. They're the things that make up your DNA. They're not living, but they're what you need as a starting point. So hopefully we'll have some time to talk about that. But there are some molecular clouds where things as complex as that have been able to be detected. All right, so dust was the other part of the interstellar medium. So we had gas, we had dust. Dust doesn't emit, emit light, but it does block it out. So we can see it in a number of different ways. Um, here, you know, what's happening here? It's a big black hole in space. Well, no, we'll talk about black holes coming up in a couple of weeks. That's not what we would see for a black hole. It's really a cloud of dust of material. So it's a denser material. There are just as many stars behind here as there are over here. So if I took a little section here and a little section here, and if that dust weren't there, I'd expect if I find 100 stars here, I'd find 100 stars here. So it would be about the same. But it's at a much cooler temperature. So it doesn't give off visible light but it does give off infrared light. So one way we can see it is looking at it in the infrared. It's a cooler temperature, but you do warm up that dust and that allows it to give off infrared light. The other way we can see dust is through reflection. When we look at some areas of the sky, sometimes you'll see these bright blue stars and you have this material around it that glows blue as well. So we call a reflection nebula. A reflection nebula is, as we say, reflection. It is just light from the stars that gets scattered off the dust grains, reflected off the dust grains and comes to Earth. Blue light is more effectively scattered, so it looks blue. Plus, these stars are very hot. They give off lots of blue light. So the combination of those two makes the reflection nebula looks blue. It's another way to be able to see the dust. We can see it by the absence of light, or we can see it sometimes around stars when there's enough, uh, when there's enough dust around them to be able to be seen like that. So reflection nebula is another example. Now, the dust also does a couple of other things. If you noticed in that first image I showed, if you look right around the edge, you see a bunch of red stars. A lot of red stars, you don't see anything that looks blue or really even white stars until you get much further away. This is a phenomenon called interstellar reddening. 
So what it means is that the dust not only does it absorb light and make things harder to see, but it absorbs the shorter wavelengths, scatters the shorter wavelengths better than the longer wavelengths. So if we really want to see what's in here, we have to look in the infrared or the very long wavelength red light to be able to kind of peer into this and see what is in this section. So the dust does a couple of things. Yes, it absorbs the light and makes things look fainter than they otherwise would. In some cases, making them look invisible. In other cases, it reddens them. But if we do look at them, there's the same image. You can see some of the same stars, but if you look at it in the infrared, all of a sudden, there's stars there. They're there. It's just there's too much dust in the way that it blocks out the light for us. So as I said, you know, some number of stars over here. Well, if I pick another section here, I'm going to find roughly the same number of stars. So this was not an absence of stars. It's just that we can't see them. The visible light is being blocked out. So things like infrared here or radio waves will be able to block that out. If you actually look at some of the stars, you can notice this as well. If you look at some of these stars, like these, this pair here, one looks brighter and one looks fainter. And then when you look at them again, it seems to have switched. We're looking in the infrared. So that means this star is putting out a higher percentage of its light in the infrared. We're hitting its peak. It's, it's going to look a lot brighter than the other stars next to it. So you can see some of those other stars, some of the stars that look like dim red ones here. Wow, they got bright all of a sudden when we look in the infrared. So again, one of those points to really look at. We want to look at things in all sorts of wavelengths because that really helps us to get a complete picture. You know, here, we would not be able to see this if it weren't for infrared. We see this. With infrared light, we can actually study the stars there. So the dust really does two different things there. So it's going to cause two problems. First of all, it's going to make the stars appear fainter. Might make them just disappear altogether, but if there's just a little bit of dust, maybe they'll just look a little bit fainter going to throw off our distance determinations because if something looks fainter than it really is because of the dust and we don't know about the dust, we're going to think it's further away. So looking at that, if you don't know how bright a headlight is, you can't judge the distance. You're using a stand. Usually when you're driving you're, at night, you're judging it based on a standard brightness. If it's an unusually faint one, the place thing might be a lot closer to you than it was. If it's unusually faint headlights. It's an unusually bright headlight. It's probably a lot further away than it is because you're using an average at, for your judgment. Well, here we don't know. So if we have stars that are actually fainter, that are actually brighter than they appear, we're going to think they're further away. That's going to throw off all the distances we talked about in chapter 19. That's going to throw everything off if we don't know about the dust. Now, if we know about the dust, we can make adjustments. But it caused big... Uh, concerns early on because we didn't understand the dust. We didn't realize how much of it, where it was, and that caused problems in, term, in terms of being able to get distances. The other thing that will happen is things will look redder. So objects will look redder than they actually are because of the scattering of light. Same thing happens in our atmosphere if you watch a sunset. Right, our atmosphere does the same kind of thing that dust does in the interstellar medium. If you watch the sunset, it's a yellowish-white when it's high in the sky, and it gets lower and lower. It's yellower and yellower and orange and orange. And when it gets down to the horizon, it's red. The well, sun didn't change. 
but you're looking through a lot more atmosphere, it's, scatter, it's better at scattering out those shorter wavelengths, and all that's left getting through is the red. That's what happens to stars. When we have to look at them through a lot of dust, it makes them look a lot redder than they actually are. Again, can cause differences with our distances. If we think a star is redder, well, we're going to change it. Is that going to affect where we're going to put it on the HR diagram? It's going to look a lot cooler than it otherwise would. So there are some things that this causes trouble with if you don't know how much dust is there, and there are ways now to try to measure that. But those will uh, cause some problems. So I've been talking about interstellar dust. What is interstellar dust? Well, here's a picture from the textbook that really shows what this dust is. It's really uh, can be a couple of different things. There's usually a core. These things are tiny. You know, we're talking nanometers, billionths of a meter. So if I try to put my, can't put my fingers close enough to show you how small this actually is. So they're very tiny grains. But the core can be one of two things. It can be carbon or it can be silicon, generally. Some of the more common elements that exist out there. Carbon would be you know, like a sooty uh, material or a sand-like, you know, a grain of sand, even smaller than a grain of sand, but a minuscule grain of sand. That could be there. And then it has a mantle around it, much like uh, other objects do. The sun kind of had different layers. Well, this has different layers as well. And the mantle would be very icy materials. And icy materials does mean water ice. It can also mean things like methane and ammonia ice as well that, can, that are around it. So overall, again, we're talking you know, a few, you know, from a micron, a, mil a millionth of a meter on down. So really tiny, th tiny things. But this is what causes all the trouble. You know, billions upon billions upon billions of these scattered around in these dark dust clouds. That's what's absorbing the light, and that's what's absorbing preferentially the short wavelength light. So just in terms of size, you know, when I say dust, we have a tendency to think of dust around the house. This is quite different than you know, ordinary household dust. This is a lot smaller make a lot easier to clean. You wouldn't, wouldn't see this, right, if it was this small at, at home. But much larger, uh, but, but over large distances, it can make a lot of difference in terms of what we can, what we see and our effect of our, on our visibility for stars. All right, so finish up the first section here. Um, the interstellar medium, we really talk about it in two parts. It's gas and it's dust. Gas is most of it. But dust sometimes has a bigger effect, especially when it's concentrated together. We can see the gas as an H2 region, ionized hydrogen. Or in radio waves, in, when it's less excited, we can see it in radio waves through 21 centimeter emission. And dust can block the light from stars that makes them appear fainter and redder than they would normally appear. All right, first section there, questions. All right, then the next section we want to look at are the cosmic rays. These are essentially particles from space that make it here to Earth. We've known about them for a little over 100 years. So discovered in 1911 by Victor Hess. And 
We don't, get, we don't get bombarded with them down on the surface here of the surface of the Earth. That's really pretty good because these are really high energy particles. They would be damaging, penetrating things that you don't want to be able to, to constantly be hitting you. Our atmosphere protects them. But if you take balloons, so that's what the image here, that's part of a big balloon you can't see up at the top, that was to get up high in the atmosphere. The difference with cosmic rays and most of the other material that we talk about is cosmic rays are actually particles. Most things we talk about are electromagnetic rays. They're x-rays, they're gamma rays, they're photons of light. So these are not. These are actually composed of the same stuff that the interstellar medium is made up of, which means it's mostly hydrogen, 90% hydrogen, in fact, pretty much just protons, 9% uh, helium, and or heavier things, but most of that's helium, and then one, just 1% of electrons or positrons. So positrons, if you recall from our unit on the sun, that's antimatter. So that's a tiny percentage of it, but there are some that do strike the Earth's atmosphere, and of course they vaporize, combined with an electron up in the upper Earth's atmosphere, give off a little bit of energy, and are immediately vaporized. So they never make it down to the surface either. But the difference is that they are particles. That's different than X-rays, different than gamma rays, different than radio waves. So they don't follow the same procedures. They don't travel at the speed of light. They get pretty darn close. But they can't actually travel at the speed of light because they have some mass. Now, when we look at the cosmic rays and we find out what they're, what they're made up of, it, their composition is really very similar to most of the stars in the interstellar medium. But one thing that we find that's missing in the interstellar medium that's very rare here on Earth are three of the lighter elements. I don't have a periodic table in here, but you have hydrogen and helium, which are the two lightest elements. Then you have beryllium, uh, lithium, beryllium, and boron are the next three. Not very common one. Not ones you hear about all the time, unless you're studying something that, you know, something that needs those to be made. And then we get up to carbon, nitrogen, oxygen, things you hear about again. These are very rare elements. And these are actually not formed in stars. Most elements we'll see are formed in stars. We talked a little bit about this with the sun. We started fusing hydrogen to helium. There are ways we'll look at to fuse helium into heavier elements. But all of these get skipped in that process. So these are actually formed by cosmic ray collisions. They're not formed within stars like all of the other elements. So for the most part, hydrogen and helium existed from the Big Bang. Things like carbon, nitrogen, oxygen, fluorine, neon, so on through the periodic table were formed in stars. These three are more common within the cosmic rays, and it leads us to believe that that's where they actually come from, that they're formed by cosmic ray collisions. So that if you have a hydrogen nucleus colliding with a helium nucleus, depending on the conditions, you might be able to form lithium. You might be able to, another one might be able to form beryllium. So that's where actually these three lighter elements come from. The nice thing, again, cosmic rays are blocked by our atmosphere. Just as our atmosphere blocks X-rays and gamma rays, we don't want to get bombarded by those. We, do, we don't want to get bombarded by cosmic rays either. But we can observe how they strike the atmosphere 
And when they do, they release energy and they sometimes put a shower of particles coming down. So one really high energy particle comes in, strikes the Earth's atmosphere, and then you get the shower of particles coming from it, and those you can actually study. Those are a lot lower energy, not as damaging to us, but things that we can study to learn about the particle that created them in the first place. So there are some things that we can study, but overall, again, overall it's very similar to the stars, the difference being these this mid-range elements, elements three, four, and five in the periodic table, which when we talk about uh, energy production at the end of a star's life, we'll skip because we'll take helium and we'll fuse it into carbon. We skip. It doesn't go through steps to form lithium, beryllium, or boron. So this is the place where they actually come from. Now, where these come from? Well, we get some from the sun. A few, our sun, some of the very energetic particles, so a, a coronal mass ejection or CME, where you have particles being sent out, you can get some cosmic rays coming from that. But the vast majority of them come from outside our solar system. The problem with these, in order to track them, right, when we look at visible light, light travels in nice straight lines. So if there's a star there, the light travels straight to us, and we can trace back and say where the star was. Cosmic ray particles don't do that. Charged particles are affected by magnetic fields. So as they travel through space, any little magnetic field can deviate their path. So what we see coming from that direction may have weaved around and came from over there. We don't know. And another particle that went slightly different path that came from all the same direction may come this direction because those, the magnetic fields are going to affect them. Now, that's nice with us and the sun, right? The sun sends out charged particles. There's our magnetic field that kind of buffers, and most of those particles come around. A few of them will get through. A few of the higher energy ones will break through, and that's the galactic cosmic rays that we look, like, look at. And in fact, most of them... Uh, Come from, uh, come from within our galaxy. Probably supernova explosions within our galaxy. So we saw, I saw a little bit, showed you a little bit of the remnant of a star that exploded. Well, it sends out lots of particles. Those things are going out at close to the speed of light. And they can travel through and they can eventually, you know, hit Earth. And they could be things that happened hundreds or thousands of years ago. Remember, out in space, there's no friction, nothing that slows you down. So if you're going at the speed of light, unless something else hits you, you just keep going at very close to the speed of light. So these could be things that occurred you know, 10,000 years ago on a distant part of the galaxy or 50,000 years ago on a distant part of the galaxy and have just traveled through to us. So they do go at relatively high speeds, about 90% the speed of light. So they are massive particles. They can't travel at the speed of light, but they can get pretty close. And as I said, supernova explosions. But there are some really high energy ones traveling even faster that may come from events outside of our galaxy, may come from other galaxies or other type of interactions that occur uh, further away. So... You know, where do they come from? Well, there's a mixture, but probably most of them are from supernovae within our galaxy, stars exploding. And again, something we'll come back, we'll look at that process in a little bit. Now, how do we detect these? Well, there's an example here of how we detect them. This is the Veritas array, which is looking for gamma rays. What good is a gamma ray telescope on the surface of the Earth? 
Not, gamma rays aren't supposed to make it down to the surface of the Earth. Well, they can detect the gamma rays that are produced when a cosmic ray interacts in the upper atmosphere. And they're able, they are able to detect that, or the light that comes as those gamma rays absorb something else. They're able to detect that light and then try to work back to what form. So kind of working backwards, you're not detecting the cosmic ray itself. You're detecting something that formed from the cosmic ray. You can also get detection from balloons, get balloons up, up high in the atmosphere, and in fact, thin plastic sheets. The cosmic rays will strike them, and you can watch the patterns as they go through. And that allows us to go back and to study, again, we can look at the direction, but the direction of the cosmic ray comes from, unlike light, doesn't tell us where it came from in space. So we can't use cosmic rays and trace them back and say, oh, here's where this supernova occurred. Because the cosmic rays from that supernova could have twisted and turned around, and they can be coming from all different directions now as they pass through the magnetic field of the galaxy. So that's one example down here I wanted to show, and the other is using still, as we did over 100 years ago, still using balloons. So finishing up this section, cosmic rays, high-velocity nuclei traveling through space. They're, for the most part, if you remember, 99% of them were nuclei, and most of those were protons, hydrogen nuclei. A uh, little bit of the rest were heavier elements, and then a few were electrons, or electrons very rare within the cosmic rays. The magnetic fields cause us the trouble. We can't make a, a cosmic ray telescope to figure out where these come from because any magnetic field will change their paths. So even our overall galactic magnetic field, which isn't gigantic, but it's there, and as the particles are going through and traveling through it, it's going to adjust their path slightly. And that's going to make it really hard to trace them back to their source of origin. And most originate in our galaxy probably from supernovae. All right, questions? All right. Well, how does the interstellar medium change? So we finish up on the interstellar medium here. Uh, it's not the same now as it was. So the nebulae themselves will change, but the interstellar medium that existed billions of years ago isn't the same composition as it is right now. It's slowly changing over time. The nebulae will change, things like the Orion Nebula. I showed that early on. Showed a couple other nebulae, you know, what they look like right now, but if we come back and look at them a million years from now, they're not going to look like that. They're not going to look the same. They're slowly changing. Stars are forming. Stars are dying. It's going to constantly change the face of the nebulae that we see. And material will go through different stages. So what we saw is dark clouds, dark molecular clouds, are really one of the very earliest stages of star formation. That's where the material is just starting to condense down. A million or two million years later, it might have formed into a star. So what we saw is a dark cloud may have formed into a star and may now have a H2 region, ionized hydrogen region around it. Afterwards, that star may die or explode, and then the H2 region is gone. Then we have the remnant of a supernova. So we don't really, that what we see, you know, the same material is going through different stages. And it builds on itself. So each cycle is repeated. So you don't just do this once. You don't just form stars once. 
okay, formed all the stars, they go through their lives, it's done. In a galaxy like ours, stars are constantly forming. So the next generation of stars builds from the material that was formed in the previous generation. And then the third generation and the fourth and the fifth. For something like our sun, it doesn't matter. Well, I mean, our sun lives about five billion years old. So it had about five, in the galaxies, about 10. So it had about five billion years worth of cycles to go through. A cycle for our sun is 10 billion years. It's not going to happen. For some of these very massive stars, they're only a million years. There's lots and lots of millions in five billion. So you can imagine you went through multiple generations of stars forming, dying, exploding, sending their material back out into space. And that changes what the material, what the interstellar medium is made up of. Not drastically. I still told you it's 90% hydrogen and 10% helium, right? Pretty much the same as, as the sun and, as we'll, and the stars that we looked at. But you keep enriching it. Each time you have a stellar explosion, that's when more heavy elements are forming. Heavy element to an astronomer, it's not hydrogen or helium. So that's where the carbon comes from. Where does the, where does the nitrogen, the oxygen, the iron, the silicon, silicon that forms our rocks, had to come out of a supernova. Iron in your blood had to come out of a supernova. So all of anything other than hydrogen and helium were formed in the Big Bang, that's it. Everything else was formed in stars and went through this process. So constantly going through this stage, building it up, forming a, forming a massive star, exploding, sending that material back out into space. So when we look at this in terms of a cycle, the stars form from the cool gas and dust. So we have the cool dust and dust, uh, gas and dust that will condense to form stars and planets. Then stars will convert lighter elements into heavier ones through nuclear fusion. Now we've only started with the first step of this when I talked about the sun. I talked about how you convert hydrogen into helium. More massive stars or the, star or the sun at the end of its life will be able to convert helium into carbon. Carbon into oxygen, oxygen into neon. And you can work your way up the periodic table. So this is where we can get some of these heavier elements is from these later stages that we'll look at in the next chapter, I think. I think it's in chap no, chapter 22, next week's chapter. So we'll look a little bit more about where these actually come from. But that's what the stars are doing. Stars are converting light elements to heavier ones. However, you also have to get that material out of the star. If the star creates all this material, remember, all of that energy is produced down in the core. That's where all of this is going on. Unless you get that back out into interstellar medium, it's locked up in the star. So our sun is producing hydrogen to helium. Our sun will produce helium into carbon and will form a, eventually have a solid core of carbon, maybe some oxygen, but it's not going to explode. Our sun is not the type that can go supernova. So all that material is going to be locked up in the sun forever. We need those very massive stars that can explode to get that material back out into the galaxy. So, and some of this will be used to form the next generation of stars. There are several ways to do this. Supernovae, the most prominent one, is when a star explodes. You send out a lot of material, release a lot of energy, you can create a lot of heavy elements there. So that's where we think a lot of the elements come from. Planetary nebulae, this is what our sun will do. It'll expel its outer layers. 
So it'll send a little bit of material back in, but most of the heavily enriched material is still locked in the core. But it will send some material back out into space. And same thing with stellar winds. There are some cases in later stages where material can be dredged up from the core. So you can actually have convective currents that reach down to the core and bring some of the material to the surface. Um, so there could be an, a little bit of an enhancement, but not the same as you'd get with a supernova. So what it means is that each generation, each time this occurs, each successive generation will become more enriched in metals. Metals, heavy elements, mean the same thing to us. It means anything other than hydrogen or helium. So to an astronomer, carbon's a metal, oxygen is a metal, neon is a metal. If it's not hydrogen or helium, it's a metal. But each generation will have gone through this. So the first generation of stars that formed after our galaxy did would have gone through their lives, the heaviest ones would have gone through their lives in about a million years. So after two million years, after a billion years, you've gone through a thousand cycles. After five billion years, what, 5,000 cycles of this going on constantly at a million years? That's about when our sun formed. If our sun had formed five billion years earlier, we wouldn't be here. Wouldn't have things like silicon, wouldn't have things like iron that make up the earth, wouldn't have the carbon and things that make up our body. They would not have formed yet. So because our sun formed a little later, it had more of these trace elements. There's still traces in, the, in, the, in there, but more of those to be able to be enriched with, and the sun had more stuff to form with than a similar star that may be formed five billion years before that. Now, when we look at the stars, and I'm going to show you this again on the next slide as well, uh, this one looks at kind of the process by which this goes through to go through the life cycle of a star and how do we get that material back out into the stars. You start off with a molecular cloud or a molecular cloud. Parts of the dark part of the Orion Nebula would qualify as that. And part of the edges of the Orion Nebula are things that are just forming. Into a cluster of stars with still some gas around it, you've got some stars that are just in the process of forming. When you form a star, you can form one of three things. And there's various masses in between them, but if we just want to look at them in generalities, we can usually say there's massive stars, about eight to ten times the mass of our sun. You can get low-mass stars. Those are stars like our sun, less than eight times the mass of our sun. And you can get brown dwarfs, which are less than 0 0.08, less than a tenth the mass of our sun. So pretty much you have a range. And yes, these can go up to about 100 solar masses. These have a pretty good range. These have a range down smaller. But you have those three things that you can do. Brown dwarf stars don't do much. That's why they kind of end there. Any material locked up in a brown dwarf is pretty much going to sit there for the rest of the history of the universe. It's not going anyplace. So if you trap up some iron in a brown dwarf, it's not coming back out. Now, our sun, and again, we're going to go through the actual evolutionary process in more detail next week, but our sun right now is what we classify as a low-mass star. Eventually, at the end of its life, when it uses up the hydrogen in its core, it'll expand. Essentially, what happens is the core will contract down, the outer layers will expand out, and our sun will become a red giant star. Remember, those are on the upper, upper right-hand side of the HR diagram. 
So our star, our sun will change its temperature, it'll change its luminosity, it'll get much brighter and much cooler. It'll eventually get large enough to engulf the Earth. So sometime, someday, five, five and a half billion years from now, we'll be a part of the sun because that will become, that will go back into that. Now, then you have a couple paths here, it kind of splits up. Uh, this case is for our sun going straight ahead because this requires a binary star. This requires two stars, and we're just one. We have just our sun. So it'll be a red giant. Eventually, those outer layers get expelled out into space in what we call a planetary nebula. That's one way of sending some material back out into space. And then the core is left behind, becomes a white dwarf and a black dwarf. Again, I'm going to go through those in much more detail later on. But that's one... Right? But that, so that doesn't get a whole lot of material. It's mostly the outer layers. It's mostly hydrogen and helium with just some trace elements. It doesn't get a lot of material pushed back in there. The second way you can do it is if it's a binary star. So if you have two stars close together and one of them goes through these stages and becomes a white dwarf, there are two different things that can happen. And this way, these ways you can get a lot more material back out into space. Um, the path it takes here depends on the actual mass of the white dwarf. Uh, the key is about 1.4 times the mass of our sun. If it's more than that, it, becomes, it can become a supernova and explode, tear the entire thing apart, one way to create some heavier elements. If it's less than that, it can't do that. It will just become a nova. So not a supernova, but a nova, so a lower class. And it will give off some material. It'll burn some material and expel that out into space. So these are, again, some ways at the end of a star's life to be able to expel that outward. Where a lot of it comes from, though, because most of the stars in this class pretty much go straight through, and that white dwarf, that might be all carbon, but it's not getting back out into the universe. Might be all oxygen, but it's not getting back out into the universe. It's just going to sit there and cool down. So that's what will happen with our sun. This is one way to get it out. The bigger way to get it out is when you have a massive star, which become, again becomes a red giant. If it's over a certain mass, it will explode as a supernova. That sends lots of heavy elements. That rips a lot of the core out. You're really down into the core. The explosion is taking place there. And you're expelling a lot of material out into space that is heavily enriched in things like carbon and silicon and iron and all the other elements in the periodic table. So that's where we get a lot of this material left behind. And I'm not going to go too much into this because this doesn't really get material left out, but you can have material left over behind this. That's what we'll talk about in a couple of weeks in terms of neutron stars and black holes is really what's left over after the star explodes. For right now, we're just worrying about getting that material back out into space. So this is some of, these are some of the ways that I've talked about that we can get material back out into space. So whether it's through supernovae, there's two different classes of them here that we'll see, type, we'll call type 1 and type 2. And you can have novae, you can have planetary nebula. Any of these things are actually getting material back out into the interstellar medium. And they're all going to be at least a little bit more enriched in the heavier materials than the original. So may not be much, but maybe a little bit more that it's added to that. The earliest stars would have been only hydrogen or helium. So those first stars to form, they could have formed planets, sure, but they'd look like Jupiter or Saturn. 
because they're all gas. That's all they would have had to form from was gas. So things like the Earth. So we would expect that a solar system like that would have no terrestrial planets, no Earth-like planets, no Mercury, no Venus, no Earth, no Mars, because all it would have had to build things from was hydrogen and helium. Later stars, after you've gone through this cycle billions of times, or millions and millions of times at least, then you can actually form heavier elements. You can actually form planets like ours that have things like silicon that you needed these supernovae to expel out into space. And that would allow the formation of Earth-like planets of life would have all been based on needing this process and getting that material back out. If the stars produced the elements but locked them up in their core, as the sun will do, they don't get back out into space. They don't, you don't have them to build future generations of stars from. When you have those explosions, you do have things where you can get material back out into space. So, other thing I wanted to talk about that's mentioned in here is where's the Earth's water came from? Now, where we are in the solar system shouldn't have a lot of water, but there are some different thoughts as to where it might have come from, whether it came from some of these interstellar dust grains. Yes, they're tiny. But don't forget, there's many billions of them. There are masses of the sun's worth of them scattered around. So they could have formed elsewhere and become incorporated within the gas cloud. And it could have been trapped into some of the rocky material that would have then been released. So you'd have material that, had, that formed with silicates but had some water material within it. When the Earth differentiated, the water would have come up to the surface. So this would have been more of a... Uh, formation that everything formed from the interstellar dust grains that helped form the sun. Right? The sun would have water in it, but the sun got so hot that guess what? The water got broken apart into hydrogen and oxygen. So the sun was not able to keep it as water, but here on Earth we could. So the water could have formed elsewhere and become incorporated into that cloud that formed our solar system. So that's one way we could get water from the Earth. The other thought is that maybe water came from elsewhere within our solar system. So it does kind of build on this. But instead of coming directly from that, the Earth might have been too hot early on. So maybe too hot to form water. But it could have formed further out in the solar system. Out in the outer part of our solar system, where the larger planets are, well, there's more water. So it's a lot colder, so that you had water and ice and things that could form very easily in the outer portions of our solar system. And then those comets could have struck the Earth, brought water to us. An individual comet might only be 5, 10 kilometers across, but we probably got hit millions and billions of times early on in the history of the solar system. So that could have brought the water to the Earth as well. So... It's an open question. We don't know for sure where water on the Earth came from. But it could have been one of these two things. It could have been in some of these dust grains. Remember, those dust grains were like a little bit of silicon or carbon with a big shell of essentially water around it. That's where, that's where the water on Earth could have come from. Or maybe it came from those, but it still formed in the outer solar system and came from asteroids or comets. So there's a couple different ways that we can explain, but either way, the water's been here for quite a long time. All right, last thing I wanted to look at here is what we call the local bubble. 
So it's a local bubble of material. When we actually map out where the density material is, that the sun is in part of a, one of these bubbles. There's denser material outside, less dense material inside. And we think this is probably a sign of supernovae. That supernovae, when that big explosion occurs and material is streaming out, that something that happened here is clearing out this bubble. So it's one around the sun here, maybe a couple here, maybe another one down over here, another one. You know, this is split into two, so maybe a couple of supernovae that that really cleans out. So our area around, the area around the sun is much lower in density from the interstellar medium than the galaxy in general. So we are within one of these bubbles of material that's really pushing the material away. And the couple things that could cause the supernovae is a good one because a supernova explosion, a lot of energy kind of expelling things out into a bubble and clearing out the cooler gas, the cooler gas that was left behind. So that's one way this could form. The other would be just a stellar wind. Our sun's stellar wind is not very strong, but more massive stars have really strong stellar winds. And if you get a few of them in a cluster, you could have a very intense stellar wind that would push material away. And again, kind of clear out, clean out some areas. Now we find these through X-ray emission. So when you map out the X-rays, you find these bubbles. So we can see that there's less material here, less dense, so there seems to be like the edge of a shock wave here around, this, around the sun. And we seem to be within one of those bubbles. So makes sense. We're not really in a region of star formation where the sun is right now. So we don't have a lot of extra material. When you get over to things like Orion and Betelgeuse, which are within a star-forming region in Orion, we get a lot more of that. So, finish up this chapter. Uh, interstellar medium is constantly changing. It's constantly changing in its shape. How does it look? So the nebulae that we see, if I, if I show you a pretty picture of a nebula one time, guess what, a million years from now, it will not look like that. But there'll be brand new nebulae that look like something else that will appear. The composition also changes, what they're made up of. Originally, it was just hydrogen and helium, and over the last you know, 10 billion years, it's slowly becoming more and more enriched with heavier elements. There's still just a trace. So it's not that the galaxy is turning into carbon and silicon and iron, but instead of them being a minuscule fraction of a percent, they're only a tiny fraction of a percent. But it's enough that there can be enough when you form a solar system that you can have enough left over to make planets like the Earth. Um, the material is constantly being recycled, so each new generation forms from the remains of the previous generation. And it's constantly going. It's not like there's one generation, stop, second generation. They're all overlapping. Stars are constantly forming. But each individual process is something like this. And then I looked again at the end a little bit about the bubbles of hot gas, which might be created by part of this process where material is being expelled out into the interstellar medium. All right, questions? Oops, why are we there? Okay, we'll start there. Otherwise, what I want to plan on doing is probably, I'm not going to get through 21 today. I'm probably just going to get through the first section of it because the last two 
are on exoplanets and they tie together, so I don't want to get partway through or through one of them and save the other one for Wednesday. I'll probably just leave all of exoplanets for, for Wednesday for us. So we'll go through the star formation one, which is really to tell about how does a star form. So how do we go about producing a star? You've got a lot of different things to look at. I mean, how do you get enough material? You've got to get a lot of material at a higher density. Remember, remember the interstellar medium was really low density, one particle per cubic centimeter. So a little light, little, a nice cube, a little cube of sugar, sugar cube, one particle, 10 to the 19th in the Earth's atmosphere. So one followed by 19 zeros in the Earth's atmosphere in the same space. So very low density. You've got to get material into that. So looking at stars in general, you know, we know we call stars a star, becomes a star, when it is able to produce its own energy. And for most stars, or what we call the main sequence stars, which our sun is one, that produces energy by converting hydrogen into helium. 600 millions of tons of hydrogen to helium every single second to produce the energy we get from the sun gives you, again, an idea of how massive the sun is. Because the sun can convert 600 million tons of hydrogen into helium every second for 10 billion years without running out of hydrogen in its core. It's a lot of hydrogen. Remember, the sun is many, many times more massive than the Earth is. Stars come in ranges. Smallest you can get is about 0.08 solar masses. Largest, about 100 solar masses. So about the limits based on theoretical calculations. Below that becomes a brown dwarf. Higher than that, the star's just not stable. And it won't allow anything to be able to, radiation pressure will start pushing off outer layers if you get much more than about 100 solar masses. The small stars, the small mass ones are the really common ones. Those are the ones we see a lot of. If we look at the stars near us, the nearest couple dozen stars to the Earth, you can't see most of them with your naked eye. If you go out at night, those aren't the stars you're seeing. They're the closest ones, but they're really small, really faint. You need a telescope. You need binoculars to be able to find them. But they are very common. We just can't see them over large distances. The hottest and brightest are the massive main sequence stars. When we look at the main sequence and the low mass main sequence stars, those are the cool and fainter. So these are the ones that are the most common. These are the rarest ones, those massive main sequence ones. But those are the interesting ones. That's where a lot of stuff goes on. Not that low mass ones aren't interesting, but they pretty much sit there and can do the same thing for a trillion years. Our universe is only 14 billion years old, so they can be doing what they've done for the whole life of the universe and then can do it again and again and again and again and not even change. So there's not as much going on with those as there is with the massive main sequence ones. That's when we're going to talk about things like supernovae when we get to those most massive ones. But a galaxy like our Milky Way, even though it doesn't have a lot of gas and dust, it's a relatively small percentage of the mass, still has enough gas and dust to make billions of stars. So the star formation process is continually, is still continuing. We're still forming stars today within our galaxy. We'll see other galaxies when we, look at, when we look at other ones. There are some galaxies that did form all their stars at once and pretty much have no gas and dust, don't have any star formation going on right now. 
So there are some other kinds of galaxies that we'll look at, but for a galaxy like ours, we still have stars forming. And we see that through places like this. I don't know if you can recognize the constellation of Orion there through all of the other material around it, but Orion is really a big star-forming region. There's, there's Betelgeuse, so there's the four stars in the body, there's the three in the belt, there's the sword down with the Orion Nebula. So that's actually just an image. That's not a telescopic image. That's just you know, a regular photographic image of Orion. Of course, it's a photographic image that was exposed for a much longer time. So had to leave, it leave the lens open, get a lot of light from it to be able to see all of these features. So this is one of the nearest star-forming regions to us, about 1,500 light years away. So some of the things that we see, we see the Orion Nebula there, but we see some other nebulae here. Red, the red glow is emission nebula. There's one here. There's one here, a big loop of material around here. And when the stars form, they don't form all at once. So when we look at the stars, the stars in the belt of Orion, the most prominent part, so if you go out and look early in the morning before sunrise right now, you can see Orion. And the three, the three bright stars in the belt are one of the things that stands out. Those are about five million years old. The stars going down in the sword are even younger. Those are only about a million years old. And the stars in the trapezium, that's the stars in the central portion of the Orion Nebula, are only a couple hundred thousand years old. So they have just formed. I mean, in, in astronomical terms, a star that formed 300,000 years ago just formed. Because it takes, it takes reasonable amount of time to form a star, but compared to the life of a star, even the couple million year lifespan of maybe these stars, you know, they still have just formed. And there are more stars that are still in the process of forming. So the process is not done. Orion is still forming stars. Now, this is one of the nearest star-forming regions. It's not really a real, very big one. There are a lot bigger star-forming regions scattered around the galaxy and in other galaxies that we can see. Uh, the, what's the big one? The Tarantula Nebula out in the Large Magellanic Cloud. Can't see it from here. Got to go down to south, uh, south of the equator. But there is you know, a much bigger star-forming region, which dwarfs anything that we form in Orion here. Makes the Orion Nebula seem like just a little speck. So there are many big star-forming regions within our galaxy, within other galaxies that we can see. But there are thousands of stars here and that are in the process of forming. Now when we look at the central portion, uh, when we look at the uh, molecular cloud here, this is looking at the central part of the trapezium. So essentially what I'm doing is I'm zooming in on just the central portion of the Orion Nebula here. So when I look at that, this is the visible light image. Hard to see, because you've got all that dust and material that's glowing that brightens up the rest of it. When we look at it in the infrared, there you can see a whole bunch of those stars. Yeah, you can pick out a few of them. You can probably pick out the four in the trapezium, the four brightest there. There they are again. But all this other material, giving off red hydrogen light, doesn't show up when we look in the infrared portion of the spectrum. So we can actually see it a lot better here, and you can see a lot of those stars that are formed. So it's not just those four massive stars, there's a lot more low mass, lower mass stars that have formed as well. So it's all formed from that material, that gas and dust that will collapse. 
eventually we have to clear out the nebula. Eventually we don't have all that material there and the stars will, uh, strong stellar winds, supernova explosions will clear away any of that remaining material. So as material has formed, it'll start eating away at this and we'll have a new set of stars beginning to form as well. So here you may have some older stars that have formed. As they move, they compress. So here's where stars are forming right now. And then out here, you've got stars that are forming in the future. So the process will continue. It doesn't include this cloud may be gigantic and more, may form thousands and thousands of stars, but they go through and the shock waves from this one will push the material, compress the material here. And that, as those stars begin to form, will begin to compress material here as you continue to work through the cloud. So I just want to give you the hint. It's not that stars form all at once, just as we had stars in Orion formed at different ages. Even within a molecular cloud, they're going to take their time. And the first stars, wherever the compression hit that cloud first, that gets it forming, is what's going to have started. And then that, those will give off strong stellar winds. Some of those will explode as supernovae. And that will continue shock waves going out. Less material out here, so nothing happens to the material going that way. But this way continues to get compressed and forms more stars. So that process will continue. So that's kind of clearing out the nebula afterwards. We really want to look at what's forming. How do these stars form in the first place? And the problem is dust. Dust causes trouble because we can't go and look at them. We can see the stars in the trapezium, but most of the stars that we want to look at are not giving off, not able, their, their light is not able to penetrate outward. So in order to study star formation, it depends on what stage we're looking at. Infrared works really well, but visible light does not. Radio waves work well for the very earliest stages because the gas cloud is so cold that it's really only giving off radio waves. As it starts to warm up more, infrared works, but those are a lot better and they also penetrate through the dust so we can see them. Well, that's great. If we can actually do them, we can actually see them, we can look at them. We can look at them, we can watch the process of formation. But we can't watch any one star form because even the earliest stages, the initial collapse, I told you that's short thousands of years. So if I find a star just beginning to collapse, I can sit there and study it for my whole life and it's not even, you know, someone could study it for a hundred years and it's not even going to get a tenth of the way through the process. And if it's thousands of years, not just a thousand years, you're even less of it through. So you can't study one individual star, but you can study all the different stages. And I often compare it to studying, you know, if you've got a semester project, for studying human development. Well, you can't watch one human develop in a semester. But you can study infants, toddlers, children, teens, etc. And you can put together, oh, well, here's how things change. But you're not doing it by studying one object. You're doing it by studying a bunch of them. So you're studying a bunch of people. In that case, here you're studying a bunch of stars at all different stages of their formation. So some would be at the very earliest stages where that's just a clump of material. So you can start to get a clump and a dense core that begins to form within it. If you get enough material there, gravity starts to become dominant. And gravity will start to pull that material down. So once you get enough material that's condensed here at the center, 
you take a look at the size there, that's 5,000 astronomical units. That's much bigger. That's not a star that's formed yet. That's just a big clump of material. 5,000 astronomical units is much bigger than the major part of our solar system, at least. Um, if we go from Neptune to Neptune, that's about 60 astronomical units. That's essentially the size of the planets within our solar system. We're talking almost, what, 100 times further than that. So, but it is a clump of material. And then within that, you'll start to form the core. So if we look, zoom in and look at that, you'll start to form a denser core that will slowly collapse inward. Gravitational force will kick in, start to pull more material in, and material will condense down, forming the star, leaving some material around that eventually becomes the planet. So it's a lot easier for material to fall in from the poles so material, it was eventually a spherical cloud. It's a lot easier for the material to come down this way than it is to make it in through the equator of the sun. That leaves that material behind that will eventually form stars. So in the long run, you'd eventually have that forming. Material continues to form in. And eventually, you'll have just a star, in this case a protostar, or the beginnings of a star, that will begin to form there. So I'm still looking at the earlier stages here, but it's a lot easier for them to fall in this direction. The next step that will happen is for stars like the sun, it becomes what is known as a T-Tauri star. I think I, I think I may have mentioned those before. T-Tauri just means it was a variable star discovered in the constellation of Taurus. In this case, it was the third variable star discovered in the constellation of Taurus. Um, Again, they're hidden in the dust cloud. In order to see those, we need infrared. That's when we start getting strong stellar winds. And sometimes these will become uh, stars that will give off jets of material. So as the material collapses in, and most of it is collapsed in and cleared out the polar regions, it's a lot less material there. As the energy, as the star begins to form, it'll actually push off material. So you'll actually get beams of material being spewed out along the poles. We won't just see this in stars. We'll see this in galaxies on a much larger level in a few weeks. So material comes out, and we will see what we call a herbig Aro object, which is something, well, here's a sketch of one. Essentially, there's the star forming. There's the disk of material that was spiraling into it. And as material goes off this way and this way, you don't really see the material. You see the material when it smashes into the, the gas that was left over. So when the jet of material crashes out here, it gives off energy. It causes the material out here to glow. Those are what we know as Herbig Aro objects. So they're a sign of very early stage of the, well, the later stages of star formation. We've already got the star forming. We've got a disk of material that may become planets. And then we have these objects around that form as well. They actually look a little more like this. This is an example of one. So that's just a sketch. This is the actual image here where you have a star that's forming there. You can't even see it. It's blacked out, not because it's so bright, but because there's still too much dust there. And you have a jet of material going out this way and a jet of material going out this way. So very young stars can do this. They can send out jets of material. And every place where it hits something in the interstellar medium, that's where it glows. So these are some of the older regions. These are some of the current ones that are still expanding outward. So when we see things like it's one of those signs of star form. Stars have recently formed. 
because we're still seeing these very young stars in the process of forming. So, then they got to settle down. Once they go through all this activity, the Titori stars, the Herbigaro objects, really the protostar begins to settle down. The stellar wind that was intense moderates to something more like what the sun has now. The jets diminish and disappear as it begins to form. That disk left behind will probably form planets. The rest of the nebula will be cleared out by the radiation pressure. And really, at the end, what will be left is the star, now an official star, once it actually begins fusing hydrogen to helium, it becomes a star. That's when we actually classify it as a star. That's the first step that's needed you know, along this process as it's collapsing. That's the key. That's the trigger that goes from protostar, something that's beginning to be a star, to I'm an official star. I'm officially a star now, is when we convert hydrogen into helium. So that'll there and, you know, maybe a planetary system. From what we're seeing, and we'll see when we talk about it on Wednesday, planetary systems seem to be really common in the universe, or at least in our galaxy, the one we can study. We've got, I was looking up the number this morning for something else, it's a little over 4,100 planets now that are known outside of our solar system. When I was an undergraduate, okay, that was a long time ago, but it was zero. We didn't know of any just 25 or 30 years ago. So it's not, not ancient history. I'm not that old. But even just 25 or 30 years ago, we didn't know about any. So that planetary system, again, we thought they formed easily, but we didn't have the evidence for them. And we're going to look at that a little bit more next time. But what I wanted to finish up here, finish up with here, was kind of putting this together with the HR diagram that we've looked at before. So... As a star evolves, this is the formation track of a star. So what does a star do as it's forming? It's changing its brightness, and it's changing its temperature. That means it will move on the HR diagram. Because if its temperature changes, if it gets hotter, it's going to go to the left. If it gets colder, it's going to go to the right. If it gets brighter, it's going to move up. If it gets fainter, it's going to move down. So for something like our sun, Right in here, there's one solar mass. Our sun, as it collapses, gets smaller and stays about the same temperature as it goes here. So it stays roughly the same temperature, but it gets a lot fainter. <coughs> it's producing energy, but it's getting fainter because it went from being really big to getting much smaller. It's collapsing down. So smaller surface area, it doesn't have as much, it doesn't have as much surface area to give off energy. So it started off relatively bright, we don't see those stages. They're all hidden. Remember, that's all hidden in the dust clouds. So that's why we don't have all these bright stars that are forming out there. And then as it comes down, then it makes kind of a little hook. And eventually it settles on what we call the zero age main sequence. Main sequence is where most of the stars are. The zero age is just where they start their lives for the main sequence. So that's eventually when it uh, kicks in. It, gives, it starts producing energy in here, and it settles down. This process can take you know, millions of years, depending on the size of the star. More massive star can do it in 10,000. Star like our sun, it might take a million or more. Low mass stars, it might take 100 million years to form. Bigger star, bigger gravity, faster collapse, faster formation. So overall, just to mention what I've been talking about here, the surface temperature will increase. 
So it's getting slightly warmer. In any case, if it's getting anything, it's getting a little bit warmer. And then once it reaches that critical temperature, it settles in. And then it just sits there. Because we're going to talk about planets next time, but then when we come back next week to talk about the next stage, there's nothing to talk about in the life of a star. I've told you about the sun. While it's fusing hydrogen to helium, nothing much is happening. Oh, it's our sun does lots of interest. Because we're so close to it, we can see all the details. For most stars, they're just there. They're just going through their lives, and they're going to do that for whether it be millions of years or billions of years or trillions of years. They're not going to change. The interesting things will begin to happen afterwards. So what will happen afterwards is when they exhaust their fuel. Pretty much they'll stay on the main sequence or very close to this for their life. So our sun, 10 billion years, it'll sit there. Not having a lot of changes going on. For a more massive star, it'll still be millions of years. For a low-mass star, forget it. It's that they last the entire age of the universe. So they'll last forever. So we're kind of going to go off and talk about planets. Then when we come back, we're going to say, what happens after the life of the star? What can we look at afterwards to be able to do that? The only thing I didn't mention there is if you've got low enough mass, if you get far enough down the main sequence, there's that cutoff. Given it as 0.075 or 0.08, just a matter of rounding, essentially, um, where nuclear reactions will never actually begin. So at that point, you won't have any nuclear reactions. You won't, have any, you won't ever become a star. It'll just trap up that material. So finishing up here, star formation starts out in a molecular cloud out in space. Material collapses. We start to form the star. We form disks and jets of material. So kind of the interesting parts of the star, again, are when it's forming and when it's at the end of its life. And then I kind of showed you a little bit. We started looking at this. When we do the next section in chapter 22 next week, we'll really look at how you can use HR diagrams to track how things change over the course of the evolution of a star. So I'm going to go ahead and stop there. We're a little bit early today, but I don't want to just get started on the planetary formation. I'm going to save all that for Wednesday with lab. So if there are questions, otherwise... Have a good rest of the day, and I'll see you Wednesday.